When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. And I believe if my you know, my numbers are right. Happy New Year, because I'm usually two weeks ahead on this, and that should put us at the beginning of January. And I'm extra casual today because, you know, it's like a half work week because we're here in the Christmas week. Um, but I have 10 questions from all of you. I want to spend a little extra time today. Just felt like chitty chatting a little bit more. If you're new here, I'm a licensed therapist. My name's Katie. I answer any and all mental health questions. There's nothing that you should ever feel embarrassed to ask or something that might be too weird that doesn't exist where I'm here to talk about anything and everything in an effort to just empower and educate you so that you can make good decisions about your own health. Without further ado, let's jump into question number one. Now, question number one says, hi, Katie, does having a relationship with your therapist after therapy ends ever work out? I have to be honest, when I read this question, my immediate knee-jerk reaction was like, nope, it doesn't because it's different. But, but let's hear the whole story because that's, it's a unique situation. Says my former therapist of three years and I found out we were blood relatives through another family member and have since ended therapy to pursue a familial type of relationship. Instead, she brought up the idea. At first, I was so thrilled. I love my former therapist and I am very attached to her. I used to tell her I wish she was my mom all the time. Well, since therapy with her ended eight months ago, things have gone the way that I was hoping. I've only seen her about five times due to her busy schedule. It's been so hard because I'm used to seeing her every week. I can't just call her to schedule an appointment anymore. And the inconsistency or uncertainty is killing me. Interesting. Also, I feel like I haven't been able to fully be myself when I do get a chance to see her. I'm so worried about talking about myself because I don't want to treat her like she's still my therapist. I'm afraid to meet the people in her life too, especially her kids, because I worry about what kind of an emotion they will bring up in me or that will bring up in me. Therapy felt so safe. And now I feel so incredibly vulnerable. Like what if the person who she thought I was in therapy is different in real life? So many worries. I want to talk to her about all of this, but I just don't know how. How do I adjust to this? Do you think this could ever be a quote unquote normal relationship? And for anyone curious, the two year rule doesn't apply here because she's an LICSW, which stands for, I believed, I believe licensed, I don't, I'm not sure what the I is, clinical social worker, because we have LCSWs in California and in Texas. I'm not sure what the I would stand for um, and not an LMFT. And it says edited to add that I did get another therapist that I like and that I've been seeing for a few months now. She's trying to help me process through that because that was going to be my knee jerk was like work with your therapist now to process what happened with your past therapist. But I also think it's completely fair and it's not you overstepping boundaries or anything, but to talk to her a little bit about, yeah, this is weird. Like I think sometimes acknowledging 
the strangeness of the relationship and the fact that it switched like almost overnight, I think could be helpful for you versus feeling like it's an off top, like it's, it's a topic that cannot be discussed, right? It's just like something we pretend didn't happen because pretending things didn't happen. We know doesn't work and it can make us feel worse and more, uh, you know, invalidated or I don't know, just bad, right? It's like minimizing our own experience kind of. Now I have a couple of thoughts the attachment stuff that you had with her in therapy is still alive and well. And my encouragement would be to talk to your current therapist about that. Because this concern to meet her kids, because you're worried what kind of emotion that could bring up and the fact that it's inconsistent, hanging out and it's like uncertain, that's more of a familial type relationship. And we might have to process or even grieve the loss of a therapeutic one because therapeutic and family are very different. I think many of us could argue they're worlds apart. Now, in this case, because she's a therapist, I'd assume she's very responsible and not an asshole, not abusive, right? But a family relationship is inconsistent and we see them kind of off and on as things come up or as we have time and it's not every week, you know, it's not an appointment that we have. And so I really encourage you to talk to the old therapist who's now a blood relative of yours a little bit about this and what's coming up for you. We're not expecting therapy, but it's still a relationship. And so you it's fair to say something like, hey, I just want to be honest here. This has been kind of difficult for me. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're doing it. I'm happy about it. But I do find the attachment stuff is still there and I, I don't really know what to do about it. I'm talking to my therapist about it, but that's just what's going on with me. Because in a family relationship, it is healthy and normal to share what you're going through and what's happening for you. Not in a, I expect you to fix me kind of way. And we're not coming at it like you're my therapist, but it's weird, right? Things have changed and it's okay to admit that. I, unfortunately, it's going to be a lot easier for, well, I don't even know if it's, it'll be easier, but just different also for her because you essentially didn't know anything about her, right? And the relationship was more about you. And so for her to be like, well, hey, let's do this. It's like, of course, because it'd be a dual relationship if she didn't. And a dual relationship is something that is supposed to be avoided if possible. And what a dual relationship means is that you have the therapeutic relationship and then you have another one that kind of gets in the way. And this could be like, oh, you find out you go to the same church and it's a small church. You find you tend, you attend the same workout thing or you, your kids are in the same soccer team or, you know, and that can get more and more likely as you live in smaller and smaller communities. And sometimes it's unavoidable. Like if you're the only therapist within 50 miles, chances are you're going to run into your patients somewhere, but it should be avoided, especially if family, essentially, I don't even know if it'd just be a dual relationship as much as it would just be unethical to keep seeing you. It's not, you know, it's not going to work. Um, but anyways, I guess those are my thoughts. Letting her know that you're dealing with this, telling your current therapist that it's not just the loss of the therapeutic relationship, it, it's the attachment that you had to her. And the fact that it's not consistent is triggering. And I'm curious where that's coming from. And I'd assume childhood or something, you know, where people weren't consistent with you. I don't know if you have, you know, anxious attachment or disorganized attachment or something like that, but it could be very triggering if that's the case. But talking with your current therapist about that, I think could really help. Um, I'm glad you have a new therapist and it's still, it's okay to mention that to your, you know, previous therapist who's now we're building a familial relationship because it might also be helpful to talk to her and be like, I don't, I don't know 
I know this sounds weird, but I don't know what a relationship is supposed to look like because my other family or familial relationships just were like developed over time. You know, again, it's okay to bring it up. You don't have to pretend that everything's like hunky dory. She knows you better than that too, obviously. Um, Okay. And um, the two year rule, I, I mean, I don't know about LICSWs, but from my understanding, it applies across the board as more of an ethical rule. The dating is obviously illegal. Um, and it's like, you can lose your license and stuff. But when it comes to being a friend or doing, you know, it's like, this is totally different, arguably not the same situation. But I do believe that there are always these ethical implications where things could, you know, someone could try to take your license if you engaged in a relationship at all outside of therapy. Um, and ours is three years, not just two. So anyway, but I think maybe two years for friendships. I don't remember. I just always think it's not a good idea. But in this case, like I said, it's family. It's not like we're striking up a friendship and that's why you ended therapy. That would be inappropriate to me. Let's move on to question number two. It says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, you've been a therapist for a while now. I know somebody the other day was just asking me like, hey, when did you start practicing? And obviously you start practicing under supervision when you're still in graduate school. And I want to say I started working at the Center for Individual and Family Counseling in like 2008, 2009. It was like my, I don't know if it was my first or second year of grad school. I think it was my second year. So 2009. So it's been 12, 13, 14, 15. We're going to next year be 16 years. Isn't that crazy? I always like know that I can compare it to roughly how long I've been dating Sean. I've started doing therapy like a little bit before I started dating him. So around that amount of time. Okay. So you've been a therapist for a long time now. And just, oh, so I just wonder in what ways have you changed your mind about certain things? What therapeutic methods or different therapies do you look at differently with experience? Are there any therapies you initially thought were stupid, but now admire? I have a lot of thoughts and I took some time to think about this before recording because that's a lot to consider. And there's a lot that I've learned so I wouldn't even say changed my mind. I think the, so overall, let me, I'll tell you overall what I feel like I've learned being online and just being in practice and doing what I do. Um, and then I'll get into the nitty gritties of types of therapy and stuff. Now, um, being online and answering questions all the time and having to read research and having to, I order books on Amazon, like way too much. I know I should probably get a Kindle or something. I haven't. Um, I like a book. I like to highlight things and dog ear pages and stuff and put little posty notes in. Anyway, most therapists don't have that luxury because we don't have the time. And I feel really fortunate to be able to have that time, which leads me to kind of what I've learned is that it's really easy, maybe in any job, but specifically in therapy to kind of grow stagnant. Because we do have to do our continuing education units, otherwise known as CEUs, which means we have to complete, at least for LMFTs, we have to complete 36 hours of this every two years. I do mine all online now, obviously, almost all of them are online now, but there used to be like great conferences I could go to and things like that. Um, But I've always mainly done mine online because it's expensive to go to the conferences and you guys know it didn't make a ton of money. So anyway people get stagnant. They go to the conferences or take the courses that they already know something about. They don't challenge themselves. They don't um, get the feedback I get from you to say like, hey, have you thought about this? Like my friend Michelin, who also has an Instagram account, she's a licensed therapist out of Miami. 
she was saying that she heard from her viewers that putting salt in your mouth when you're feeling like in freeze. So when you're dissociating or just feeling like completely dysregulated, just like a sour, I've always talked about sour, salt can help bring you back too. Anyway, I feel like when you open yourself up to the online world and when you practice for a a long period of time, I did leave my practice when we moved to Texas. So I have not seen a patient in my office in like a year and a half. Um, So anyways, I think that when you do that, you're, you're better at your job and it forces you to not get stuck in a rut or to not, um, not be, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Like cemented in your beliefs. I think that's a really powerful tool as a therapist. I think it makes me better at my job. And I am really just grateful to all of you for that because again, if I was on my own, it's like, I just don't have the time. Like, it's not that I'm, I'm not shit talking other therapists or other mental health professionals. I'm just saying that you don't really have the time. And when you do go to a CEU, a lot of times because they're like networking events, like I used to go to a ton of eating disorder ones because that was my shtick. But now I take, I do all sorts of things. I was just doing one about like autism and women. I did one about ADHD and how, um, like the treatment team you could put together and how that would be more effective. I've done things on like managing suicide and new ways to think of crisis management and the gamut, you guys, everything. Um, And that's because of you. So that's definitely something that I appreciate about what I've done in my time online and my time in my practice is just the the forceful, it's not forceful, but it forced me to continue to learn outside of what maybe I would have originally. Now, changing my mind. Um, I think the one thing that I've realized lately, and I, I am just being honest, being completely candid is my belief in a ton of psychotropic medication. And I say that with all respect and all love because there are so many like new research studies. When you look into like the maps program and different, um, psychedelic research, And whether it's like marijuana, whether it's ketamine, whether it's um, psilocybin, which is the part of the magic mushroom that makes us so magic, whether it's um, MDMA, there's tons of research happening out there uh, on uh, ways to treat things like complex PTSD and depression and suicidality. And it's not that I'm against medication because you'd never hear me say that, but I... I do have faith in these new treatments and even non-medication treatments. Like when I was researching for my book, Traumatized, I learned about, because of a member of our community um, and a Joe Rogan podcast about the stellate ganglion block. Now the stellate ganglion block, um, your stellate ganglion is a nerve in your neck and they find people with complex PTSD have a very overactive one. It's much larger. It's like branched out. It's like it's grown roots. And when they put the blocker in and it shrinks it, our PTSD symptoms go down. What? And I feel like that's something that my mind has definitely changed over the years. Cause I used to believe like, well, you know, with medication and therapy, that's what we're taught in school and research does prove medication therapy. It's the best outcome. Yes. But medication needs to be more broadly defined. I think there are other ways for us to treat things. I'm not telling you to go do illegal drugs or get drunk or anything that that's going to help. I'm talking about precisely dosed, you know, helpful medications. I just consider them all medications. Um, 
you know, could be really helpful. And hopefully all states will make this legal and it can be, you know, used for treatment because why is something that we build in a lab that has a shit ton of side effects be like, oh, FDA approved, give it to everybody. But then something that grows in the ground and that doesn't really have any side effects, but it was a street drug at one point, can't be redosed, repackaged, reprocessed, whatever, and be approved. I don't know. I don't know. So the only therapy that I have initially thought was kind of stupid and I still kind of do is hypnotherapy. Now I'm not dogging on it because I'm sure there's somebody out there that's helped. And if it's helped you, that's all that matters. But I still have not seen actual like good research that's like post hoc analysis. It's been debated. Like I just haven't seen it. And yeah, so, but therapies that I admire and not, not that I thought they were stupid before. I just didn't know anything about them are things like schema therapy. I knew very passing bits of it. EMDR, learning and doing it with my girlfriend. Um, you guys all know Dr. Alexa Altman. I've had her on the channel to do EMDR with me. That was eye-opening and blow, mind-blowing. Somatic experiencing, I've done a ton of research on that myself and um, preparing a workshop for that in the future. And I find that incredibly interesting and helpful. Yeah. So, I guess the EMDR seemed a little woo-woo before, and now I, I think it's definitely a treatment option. Also, the you know the somatic experiencing, I think I thought was all like, ooh, you got to be in your body, and you do, but I didn't realize what that means and how it's utilized in the therapeutic practice. So all of that's been incredibly beneficial. And overall, I think when it comes to different therapies, if it works for you, do it. I don't care what people say. And there's shitloads of different methods. I think that's another thing I've learned just being online is people ask me about all sorts of things. I'm like, I've never heard of this, you know? Um, so feel free to stop to tell your therapist, this isn't working. Can we try a different style of therapy or find a different therapist that does a different style? Because every person's going to be different. And also last thing in my research for my book, Traumatized, I also learned, I think it's in the body keeps the score is where this information is. But Vander Kolk expresses that talk therapy, just traditional talk therapy only works for 40% of people, which means we have 60% of us who are going to need something else. And so I think that's really interesting. And that's why other treatment modalities and methods are important and part of most of our recovery process. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, a little bit of an odd question, but have you ever considered doing a completely random podcast where you randomly pick all your questions instead of going by the most liked? Like once a month, a completely random? Kind of feels like it gives some people more of a chance to have their question picked. I'm open to whatever. Um, the reason I do the most likes is because that, I assume that means that it will benefit the most people. And that's always my goal is like to maximize. Um, but if you guys want me to do that, you know, let me know in those comments. And I'm happy to every so often just, I don't know if I can turn off the likes. I guess I'd have to let you know in the ask. Anyway, just logistics in my brain. I'm like, how would I? But if that's what you want, by golly, that's what you'll get. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie, could you talk a little bit about dealing with a physical chronic illness and how it affects our mental health? I have multiple chronic illnesses and it feels like I'm just constantly getting bad news. Wrapping my head around all of this has taken its toll on my mental health and it is exhausting. I just want to stop fighting. I wish that my body could work like normal and that I wouldn't be sick all the time. I'm so sorry. Goddamn, chronic illness I don't think we talk enough about it. I've done some videos in the past. I did one with Hank Green, um, good friend of mine, because he has a chronic illness, but he hasn't been in therapy. So I remember when we did that video, I was like, oh, I wish there was 
like kind of more insight into the therapeutic process, but he didn't have it to give. So that's totally fair. Right. But, um, he does talk about how hard it is and people not realizing his reality, right? Like, um, he think he shares like the story of going on a trip to, it was some not developed part of the world. And they, a lot of people do this, but in this particular instance, the only toilets were these like little squat, you know, pee poop in a hole kind of thing. And then you rinse with a, you know, there's like a little canister of water, you rinse and you're done. Um, and they were shown these restrooms when they got to this village or whatever. And everybody was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can do that. But it's also like, oh, you know, you're like, wow, I don't know if I can actually go in that and do that. Like, how do people do this? Um, you know, it's different. Things are different. It takes us time to adjust. But he had an, because he has, I forget if it's Crohn's, but he has some digestive um, chronic illness. And I, I'm sorry that I forget what it was, but he was flare, had a flare up and he was like, I have to go use that toilet. And he didn't. Everybody's like, I'm so proud of you. You know, wow, you did it. And he's like, I had to. I didn't like, yay, do it. I like had to. So I think sometimes people don't realize their privilege of not having a chronic illness. So I say all of that because of course our physical health is going to affect our mental health. They are inextricably linked. And when we're in pain or when we're constantly having doctor's appointments or given bad news, we're, we could potentially be chronically traumatized over and over and over and over, have a surgery that's terrifying, maybe doesn't go well, go to the doctor, get bad news, feel terrible. Maybe something scary happens to us while we're at home that makes us go back to the emergency room. There's so much to it, not to mention depression, anxiety, you can see how many of these different mental illnesses could easily line up when we have a chronic illness. And so my encouragement to you is to try to find, start asking around, ask at the doctor's office, ask at the hospital, ask in our community in the comments, um, or if you're on Patreon, if you want like more of a safer space um, in the live streams, people chat all the time, find a group for people with chronic illness. I swear to God, there's a group for everything. And it's important to be reminded that we're not alone and feeling sick all the time and having all those appointments. I feel like it's a very unique experience. I don't want to pretend that I've had it, but I think it would be valuable for you to have a community of people who get it. I think there's something so, I mean, it's part of what makes our community so beautiful and wonderful is that instead of having to explain things to people, sure, there's going to be things that we don't quite understand or, oh, tell me about your story. But overall, having people who get it and who are there themselves is just that reminder that we're not alone. Oh, so beautiful, so powerful. So I'd encourage you to do that um, and get into some kind of mental health treatment as soon as possible. Because from all of the pain or upset or whatever it, whatever your chronic illness cause, causes you, like could, like I said, could be trauma, could affect our mobility. So we, we get depressed or we're anxious being out because if like in Hank's case, maybe like, where's the next toilet, right? Things can be really scary, really stressful, really overwhelming, might be hard for us to travel. There's a lot that can go into it, which is why it's so exhausting. And getting support is really going to be the most important, like the biggest part of this. Um, but it, of course it's linked. Our brain and body are connected. And I'll tell you what, I pulled my back I don't even pulled the right word, but something happened in my lower right, like right above my hip kind of. And the pain that that caused me for like three days was I, I was out. 
I was like, I'm out, tap out. So for those of you who are in chronic pain due to a chronic illness, I send extra love your way because I legitimately cannot. And I think I have a high pain tolerance, you know, but I, I just couldn't. I'm like, I can't sleep. This is terrible. Um, so that's why it's important for you to be around people who get you. Now, there was a comment that said, Katie, I hope this is related enough to be an add-on, but about a week out of every month, I'm in so much pain that I can't even walk. And I've been brushed off by doctors so much that I've given up on trying to get help for it. What? It's so horrible. I find myself dreading that week of the month. And my suicidal ideation is much stronger and a little less passive when I'm in that much pain. Or maybe it's not stronger, but just harder to fight it. I constantly minimize it and I'm finding myself doing the same thing with my mental health. Not really a question, I guess, but I'm just curious your thoughts on how physical pain can affect us mentally. So I've talked about that, but I want to throw that out there. If we had another member of our community go through what's called, um, is it the, the period flu? I think is what they called it. And essentially your hormonal shift um, each month can lead to flu-like symptoms. This sounds like the pain is different. And I'm curious about like, I don't know if the person who even asked this question, you know, is a menstruating, is like a female. I don't know a menstruating human um, because I think that if it is the same time of the month, then I'm curious about your hormonal shifts and if that's affecting it. And that would be something to go, you know, see an OBGYN or like a specialist. Um, yeah, because that's, that's incredibly uncomfortable and I'm so sorry. So I'm just curious if it correlates with a monthly cycle and that's something that we would definitely want to get checked out because I hadn't heard of the period flu and when I went and looked it up, there's a ton of information. There's not a, a bunch that they'll do for you. A lot of times they'll put you on birth control or give you other options, but it's just good to know that you're not making it up. There is a name for it. I'm not saying that that's it for you, but hopefully that helps you find out what's going on. And I know it sucks that we have to be our own advocates, but we, we do. We're the only one that's going to do it. I, you know, I, it's just unfortunately how things work. Ugh. Okay. Final comment on this is Katie. My question is how are we able to prove that it is true pain and not just mental health issues being what causes me to think I'm in pain to be truthful? My, my belief on this is if you feel pain, you feel pain. I don't care if your brain is causing it. I don't care if it's your body causing it. That will make the treatment different but it's still pain. Would anybody argue that the pain that you feel when you lose a loved one isn't commensurate with the pain you might feel when you break a leg or stub a toe or pull a muscle in your back, right? Pain is just pain. It's all true. If you experience it, it's true. And the only way to prove where it's coming from, if you're looking for that kind of an answer, like does it come from mental health or does it come from physical health, is to rule things out and to see you know, our treatment teams. Because if our stress level goes down and so does our back pain, then, oh, it must be linked to stress, right? Or if, um, I don't know, let's say our body aches are constant and then we take a test and we realize that we have walking pneumonia or something, I don't know, um, then, you know, that would answer that kind of question. And so you could rule it out that way if you're, if that's what you're asking. Okay, let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hello, Katie, hello. My question is, when is it okay to take a break from life? in particular work. I've been in therapy for one year working through my PTSD or complex PTSD symptoms. And quite frankly, it's becoming almost impossible to do my job properly. I mostly work from home, which has been a blessing, but I work full time in a high stress job and I'm constantly afraid of what might finally tip me over the edge. The idea of quitting and taking time off of work on, um, off to work on healing gives me some emotional relief, but this is also terrifying. I understand. 
Not having a stable source of income has plagued my childhood. Ooh, you got the financial trauma. Yeah. And the idea of doing this to myself when I finally thought I was doing better than my parents is frightening. What should I do? Okay. First of all, the sooner we take breaks and get help, the better, just like anything, like we're talking earlier, the mental health, physical health component. If we treat a cold when we first have it, it doesn't turn into walking pneumonia. And the same goes for our mental health, right? And you have a lot to work through and it's not getting any better. And it's really difficult to process, right? And to do, you know, to do the work. Okay. My answer is going to be pretty much logistical and like step-by-step what I understand to be most HR workings and systems, but um, you should talk to your HR department or look online if they have some resources, but you need to look into what is known. I call it FMLA leave, but it's like family medical leave. Now I had a ton of patients take this. I've had friends actually take this when they have babies or have surgery or anything, or have a parent that goes in the hospital. When we need to take a long time off of work, meaning like, you know, a month or two or like um, even my sister-in-law had to take a couple of months off of work um, recently and she was able to do that through the FMLA, you know, and, and like fix an injury in her shoulder. And so you can take the leave for a variety of reasons. Okay. Now um, look into the FMLA leave, see what your they have to offer each state is going to in the, the federal government. If you're in the United States, the federal government requires a certain amount. Each state has different requirements. Um, I want to say in California, you get like six months and then you have to like figure out, then you go down in pay. So you start out with a hundred percent pay for, it depends on what their program is. hundred percent pay for, let's say three months. And then you go down to 75% of your pay. So you're not just going to lose your job. You don't have to quit. We just need to put you onto some medical leave. Now, yes, it's mental health, but it's the same thing. It's still health and we're going to take care of it. And we can tell, I would encourage you to tell them as little as possible. We had some comments below this question. People are like, don't give them an excuse to like fire you or anything. And I agree with that, even though there are protections in place and disability acts, unfortunately, not all people are good actors in this space and will take that as a, you know, a way to fire you. I'm not saying that they would, but I just want to make sure we set you up for success. So Look into the the family medical leave or the FMLA leave that's offered for you in your state and where you're at, and then go into the HR department. And all I would say would be something to the effect of, hey, I've been having some medical issues lately, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to take some time off. How do I do that? What's our What's our medical leave plan? That's, they don't, they don't get to, they, they're like, well, what kind of leave? Be like, I'm not really sure. I'm waiting to hear back from my doctors. Be very vague. Just get the information. They have it. And there's like usually forms you have to fill out, but it's none of their business. And only the things that are their business, do we need to give over to them? And I don't want you telling them any extra, because again, we don't want to give them any reasons to demote you or fire you or, oh, you still have a position, but it's like not the position that you're even want to work, you know, when you get back. So proper way is just to say, you know, I just don't know how could be a week, could be a month. I'm, I'm still waiting to hear back again. It's none of their fucking business and get the information. So then you can apply for it because that's the best thing to do. And my encouragement would be to do it as quickly as possible. Um, and I think your benefits, I'd assume just like everything, they like re up every year. So the only thing when you go, you know, if you are going to go into a treatment center that on, you know, January, you're going to have your new deductible again to meet, just make sure you can afford that. Okay. You got this. 
Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie, I'm relatively new to therapy, having only just started about seven months ago. Due to the pandemic, I've only ever been able to do teletherapy with my therapist, so I've never actually met her in person. I've heard this from a lot of people. Am I missing out on any benefits of seeing a therapist in person? For instance, I tend to fidget almost constantly, but she can't see my hands or legs, and I'm wondering if she's getting the whole picture sometimes, if that makes sense. Thanks for all you do. Have a great day. That is exactly why I don't love teletherapy. Is it beneficial? Of course. Is it amazing and silver lining to COVID because so many more people were able to access therapy? Absolutely. However, we miss things. I've talked about this exact scenario. I feel like a few times over the years we're like fidgeting or um, I've given a couple examples. Like I had this patient who was um, had an eating disorder restrictive type and she was highly anxious and she would perch herself just on the very edge of my couch and I used to joke to her that the back of the couch wasn't hot lava like she could sit back and that was actually a challenge one week I was like I'd like you to sit with your back again and like pull your legs up because then she couldn't like do the motions and stuff so there's a lot that we can miss when we only see a patient from like maybe the chest or shoulders up or maybe just the face um I also check, you know, my patients noticing if they're wearing extra bulky clothes and I want to know, you know, I'll talk to their doctor or dietitian to find out their weight and what's going on. Cause again, I work with eating disorders a lot or even like if we're able to shower regularly, that's a good indicator to me of suicidality in my patients or other struggles they're having. And so I want to be able to see that and it's easy to kind of look put together, you know, just it's like me, oh, I'm always wearing pajama pants, even when I film videos, but I put on like a blouse. You know, it's like you would be missing that if you only saw me from the neck up. So those are the things that your therapist might be missing, but that doesn't mean that you can't bring them to her attention. I know that's kind of weird to be like, hey, I fidget a lot. I don't know if you're seeing it, but I felt like I need to tell you because I haven't seen you in person. You can still draw attention to those things and tell her the things that are bothering you um, or put the camera. I've done this with patients in the past. This is before COVID when we would do um, some sessions when they would like go away to school or be on a vacation and they wanted to touch base. I'd have them put the camera a little farther away so I could see their whole body. Yes, it feels like weird to be that far away, but it can help at least to see. So those are things that you can offer, things you can do to make it work for you. Okay. There's also, I don't want to miss out. I'm talking about just like the energy of a room and the holding space. And like, for me, being able to like leave my home and go somewhere else and dump my shit and then come back. There's something about that process that I find really cathartic and really helpful. So for me, it's inpatient. It's like inpatient. It's in person or nothing um, other than it's check-ins and stuff because I really personally need that space for myself. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, is it strange to have only cried a couple of times in therapy over over several years? It's not strange. It's very normal, actually. It's like very common. It's been nearly four years of twice a week, and I just can't cry. Before I started therapy, I could cry easily outside of therapy, but it's gotten harder. Interesting. Now, a couple of reasons and things to consider. And I saw some stuff in the comments below this too that were, were helpful. Um, crying can... Crying can be difficult for many reasons. And I'm just going to rattle off some of the reasons and then we'll dig into maybe where I think this might be coming from. Now, not being able to cry in therapy is kind of different and can be hard because it's weird to cry in front of a stranger if you don't really know them. But if you've been in therapy, like you said, for four years, I would hope that you would get comfortable enough to be able to. Crying 
can be difficult for many reasons. Number one, we could have been told at a young age that crying made us weak or stupid, or we could have um, felt unsafe to be vulnerable because we were in an abusive household, whether that's through emotional abuse and neglect or sexual abuse, physical abuse, what have you. Um, We could have felt like our family life was so chaotic. We didn't want to cause any more problems. We can try to be like the perfect child or the hero child in that scenario and try to like make things easier on our mom or dad or family as a whole. That can also happen a lot of times when we have like a high needs or um, a sibling another or other member of the family who has special needs in some way. I'm just saying special needs is like a broad stroke of any number of things. Um, we could find it hard to cry in therapy because that emotion being triggered in a safe way, unfortunately, has also triggered defense mechanisms meaning, you know, maybe we're going into logic brain or maybe we're like numbing out or maybe it's too overwhelming that we dissociate and pull the ripcord. And so I just mentioned a few of those to get you thinking on where where you possibly think it could be coming from for you. Everybody's going to be different. I find that I will, cr- I mean, I cry, I'm a crier, period. But if I feel threatened or I'm angry, well, sometimes I cry when I'm angry, but if I feel like someone's threatening someone I love, so like, let's say Sean and I were out and someone was like a dick to him, uh uh-uh, rage, there's no cry, there's no tears, someone's hurting me, no rage, well, rage, but also tears. Um, So just start to be a detective for your own crying experience. What comes up for you? Where does your brain go with it? What do you think about it? When, even when you told me that you, you cried a lot at the beginning, was there any judgment around that or any judgment around your experience? Are you judging yourself for not? And so you're putting pressure on yourself being like, why aren't you? This is stupid. And we're like spiraling out that way. Be curious, take your time because it's not that it's right or wrong to not have cried in therapy where it becomes kind of like healthy or unhealthy is if we feel that urge, usually you feel it in your throat, but we feel that urge to let the emotion out and we swallow it down. And you can physically sometimes feel yourself Ugh, stuff it deep. Sometimes our muscles will tense. Sometimes our shoulders will go up and back down. Sometimes we'll swallow really hard. There can be a lot of ways that we kind of physically stuff things down. So that's the only thing I'd be concerned with. But other than that, I mean, if it's just, oh, things haven't been that emotional for me, that's okay. But I'm suspicious that maybe we're stuffing it. There was a comment that said to add on to this, is it strange to want to cry in therapy? I also only teared up a couple of times, but part of me wishes I could be more vulnerable in front of my therapist so she understood more how I really feel. Sometimes I get worried that she thinks I'm doing better than I am. You should tell her. I cry a lot outside of sessions and almost every week before I go. I think about all the things I could cry about when I'm there, but when I'm there in therapy, it becomes hard to actually feel anything and I shut down. I can get super defensive there. We have it and not want to talk about how I really feel or what's going on. It's like all of a sudden I want her to think everything's fine. Is this weird? I do trust my therapist and want to be more honest with her. Not weird at all. I have a hypothesis that like what I was talking about earlier, growing up, I have a feeling that you, it wasn't okay to fall apart or to cry or to maybe need things to be vulnerable because it triggered defenses. You said it yourself, your defense mechanism, you're like, whoa, 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 because we feel unsafe because in the past, it's not currently, this is the interesting thing to remember is sometimes when we're triggered and we act out of old patterns, that's not because something's happening now, that's because something used to happen and we don't have another experience to prove it wrong. So we react thinking, hey, that old thing is happening again. In your case, that old thing is, oh, you know, um, if I get 
if I cry or if I have needs or maybe if I'm quote unquote too sensitive, then I get in trouble. Maybe I get abused. Maybe I'm neglected. Maybe I'm told to get out of there and shut up or whatever. So in adulthood, when we're at this, like the precipice of sharing something vulnerable, we want to cry. And this person's so supportive. We're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I'm going to get hurt. Something bad's going to happen if I let this come out. So we stuff it back. Um, and then the, I want her to think everything is fine. I think stems from that too, that it was probably better to just be like, I'm okay. I'm okay. And be the quote unquote fine sibling or, you know, child or whatever. So be curious. Those, those are my hypotheses. That doesn't mean that it's true. Um, but just be curious if any of that resonates with you. Consider where you've had this happen before or where maybe crying and bearing it all and expressing our upset wasn't accepted or we were told that it wasn't okay or, you know, why are you always crying? You know, think back. When did we have that experience? And tell our therapist about it and let them know that this is what's coming up. Even if you just have to write it out in an email or a text or a letter that you give her, whatever. Um, let her know this is happening and then be curious about where it's coming from for you. Okay. And there's no wrong answers. Just be honest with yourself about those past experiences. Cause I believe that's where this is coming from. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. And this question says, hi, Katie, how much of our childhoods are we supposed to remember? Great question. I remember different events that took place growing up, but when I try to think about how things were for how things were for me emotionally or what my early relationships were like, nothing comes up. We got a block. It's all just blah. And I'm worried about this becoming a roadblock in therapy. I hope that makes sense. And thanks advance, in advance for your thoughts. Of course. Um, okay. Now, when it comes to memories, it's very interesting, especially childhood memories. A lot of it isn't, it's long-term memory because we're older, right? If it's, I don't know, I wouldn't want to put a number on like what, what moves from short-term to long-term, but let's just say five years. Okay. Just for ease of conversation. So let's say after five years, short-term memory, I honestly think short-term memory is even shorter than that. Maybe like, uh, like a month, but let's just say five years for ease. So after that time, our short-term memory is processed and put into long-term memory. And so what that means is, is that it can take a little bit of a reminder, like a photo or a conversation or something to pull that out and for us to be like, oh my God, it's like the same reason that if I smell CK1 on someone, I'm like, oh my God, middle school. And I didn't even have CK1. I had the cheap like aerosol spray from like CVS for like $5, you know, but it smelled just like it, right? There's certain things that was like, pull those memories out of that long-term memory, um, and so it's not, it's not necessarily wrong to not have the memory like immediately, but as people talk about it, you're like, oh my God, yes. And so those bits and pieces will help us put it together. And we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And we can pull it out. So don't think that like all of us are just constantly running through like, oh, I could pick any day. What, what was happening? You know, not all of us are rain, man. We can't just pull that. That's not t- technically like quote unquote normal memory retrieval. Okay. But we should be able to do that for the most part. You know, there are going to be things, obviously, that we're like, oh, I don't remember that. Oh, really? And there might be like a little bit like, oh, maybe. Yeah. Huh. But I just don't remember. And that can be a day, an experience or whatever. And that can happen for a lot of different reasons. The most common being a trauma 
Second only to just feeling overwhelmed or stressed. Let's say this was during a really difficult time. Your family was going through a divorce or something you were moving and that happened. You might not remember because you're too overwhelmed and that's okay. That doesn't, you know, make it wrong. But I would argue that with assistance of other people who we grew up with, we should be able to remember, you know, the majority. So over 50% of our childhood, um, there'll be some memories that are stronger than others, probably because we've recalled them more often. And also just so you know, random factoid also why i love inside out the movie is so correct on the way memories are dealt with but when you every time you retrieve a memory so let's say every time i sit down with my brother and we reminisce about old video games and eating oreos and brandy or cousin babysitting us every time i pull those memories out i touch them and i change them because then i've applied katie today to that old memory and it's changed ever so slightly. So it'll never be the same. And so every time we retrieve them, they change just a little bit. Um, it doesn't mean you can't trust them, but I just think that's interesting and fun. And that's kind of why an inside out when sadness starts touching those memories, she's like you're ruining them. And it was like creating nostalgia and like the, you know, they're, I forget what her name was, the main character. It'll come to me in a second. But anyway, it was because she'd moved and she missed those people. It was sad, right? So anyway, back on track, Katie. So the majority should be retrievable. And I'd even argue maybe more like into the 60, 70% with assistance from people in our family or people we grew up with. Now, the fact that you are unable to remember or recall or pull out anything that was emotional or what your early relationships were like makes me a little suspicious. So like I said, it's normal for us to be like, oh, I don't quite remember that or I don't quite remember that memory. But in therapy, when I'm talking with a patient and we're just like doing some history taking at the beginning, if there's like a swath of time, like I remember I had this patient who, I forget exactly the age bracket, but she, I think it was like, she had no early memories until 13 or something like that. It was like 12 or 13. Um, I was like, what? Like, that's a red flag. And that to me says that something happened. There was either some kind of trauma. And I know we think of trauma as only being abuse in childhood, but it can be a lot of things. Like I said, moving a lot, divorce, uh, bullied and being bullied in school, which is a trauma, but I'm just saying different. You know, we need to think of it fully that we can have this overwhelm in our family growing up. And that makes it difficult because we could have been dissociated the whole time. We might not have those memories or it could have been so stressful or so difficult to even think about that time back then that we don't want to recall. So we've just like repressed it. So the memory's there, but we stuffed it down to try to forget about it. And so when, you know, when we have those blocks, that's what I'm kind of curious about. And so something that helps might help, might not. Well, two kind of things. Number one, putting together timelines of our life could be a trauma timeline if that's what you're working on in therapy. But if it's not trauma-based or we're not really sure, it's okay to just create a timeline of our life. Like, one of the first memories that I have, like I had this dress where it had tulips on it. And I remember like getting it muddy and stuff. And my aunt had made it for me. Um, I love that dress. I want to wear it all the time. I'd be like, mom, wash it. I want to wear it again. So that's when I was like five. That's probably one of my first memories. So I have that memory. So it doesn't, again, doesn't have to be trauma-based. Just try to put this timeline together. That can sometimes help us piece things you know, kind of fill things in and realize where these kind of blocks or spaces are. Um, another thing is kind of building on that, I guess, is that if there's a, we have one strong memory 
go with that memory. I do that with my patients all the time where they're like, oh, I don't really remember anything when I'm this age. I'm like, forget about it. We'll come back to that later. I'll make a note. What is, what is one of your strong memories of childhood or teen? Like when does, when does it come back online? And then we build out from there because trying to dig into something, try to find something that we aren't finding can be really unmotivating and disempowering and kind of make us feel like hopeless, helpless. And those are not the things we want in therapy. We want it to feel empowering, like you're making progress. You feel motivated for change, feel confident in therapy. And so I try to build off of that. So maybe give that a try with your therapist and see if that works. Um, because there is something there and I'm very curious about it. But again, we can't just keep trying to force it. We got to be creative. We got to think outside the box. And so I encourage you, you know, to work with what you do remember and build out from there because yeah, it's like, I don't know if I think about my, one of my best friends growing up, Jamie and I, and I remember us meeting on the bus going to kindergarten and I can tell you what her shirt was like, and I could build out from there. Do you, you know, did, did she always ride the bus with you? Were these half days or full days, right? We could really dig into it. And these were half days. And I do remember, and you know, and then what did you eat for lunch? You know, usually you could see how much you can build. You're not going to, again, the memories aren't going to be a hundred percent. Nobody remembers every detail of everything, but you'll remember the gist. What we kind of remember is like the story, like the narrative of the day, like with this Jamie memory. I remember her hair was really, really long. And I was jealous because my, I had just got my hair cut short because I wanted my ears pierced. And so my mom wanted to, I had wanted to get a page boy cut is what it was called. And she was like, well, if, can I cut your hair the way I want? And I'll let you get your ears pierced. And I was like, you got yourself a deal. Um, so anyway, she had really long hair and I was jealous. I was like, oh, I just cut all my hair off. And she had all those, you know, those uh, elastics that have two plastic bulbs on the end that you'd like wrap together. I remember thinking she was so cool. We both had hypercolored t-shirts. Welcome to the eighties. Um, anyway, it was just, it's such a funny memory. So I can kind of build out from that and think of the things that we would do together and it like helps, helps spread it. And then like, I get excited, then emotions come with it. Oh, it's like nostalgia and sweet and that. So let's try that and see if that can kind of shake out some of these roadblocks. Okay. Let's move on to question number nine. This question says, hi, Katie, I have a restrictive eating disorder and I am an IOP three hours a day for three days a week. And I see my dietitian, my eating disorder therapist and regular therapist weekly. That's amazing. I've been doing better overall since starting treatment, but sometimes I want a higher level of care like PHP, which is six hours a day, five days a week. I know this very well because I used to work there or residential. I can't tell if these are rational thoughts coming from wanting or needing more support or a reason to take needed time off from, from work, etc. Or if it's just my eating disorder seeking more validation and power. I'm ashamed because I should be grateful that I don't need, you know, the higher level of care. Are these kinds of thoughts a normal part of recovery? How can I figure out the source? Yes, these thoughts are completely normal. I've seen it go both ways where a patient will struggle to even admit that they need any th therapy because it's like we minimize and invalidate our eating disorder. I'm not sick enough. I don't want to take it from somebody else. Well, you know, right. We can do that spiral or we can do this spiral where our eating disorder part of it is like that we kind of want more validation and more attention, which is not a bad thing um, and power, like you said, and we're wanting that and seeking that over and over and over and over and looking for it and looking for it. And it can be hard it also could be attachment based and there could be trauma. You know, there's all sorts, it's, there's layers to our, to our existence, right? So there's layers to treatment. My best advice on how to figure out the source is to, I mean, talk to your therapist, obviously, but you're, you're going to have to lean on your team first. That's my first advice is like your team knows you 
you're talking to them all the time, you're seeing them, you're in IOP, how do they think you're doing? Have they inquired about you increasing care? Because I'll be honest, I used to do that all the time with patients. If I saw that they weren't doing better in the treatment that we we're doing, the, the reason we would need a higher level of care, maybe this will help too. The reason I, as a clinician, would ever reach out to a patient and say, hey, I think you need a higher level of care or let's start looking into that, you know, start that conversation is when even though they're in treatment, getting all this help, we're not getting better. We're actually like getting worse or staying the same because the goal is to get better. Recovery keeps going, right? And it's not A to B to C. We know it's very messy up and down and back. But if there's consistent lack of progress, then I'm going to require, like I'm going to inquire and request that you consider, you know, more therapy or a higher level of care. So think about that and talk to your treatment team about it. Be honest with yourself about whether or not you feel like you're doing great or not. Also, I think it's worth looking into you needing to take time off from work. And maybe we do that anyway, because if it's a big area of stress and overwhelm, maybe we do take what I was talking about earlier, some of that family medical leave so that we get some reprieve and we can work on ourselves like solely on ourselves. Um, Yeah, those are my thoughts. This is a completely normal part of recovery and the process. Be kind with yourself as we navigate it. This is not something to judge yourself on. Um, Like you said, you feel ashamed. There's no need for that. This is just you trying to sort it out. And like I said, everyone's different. Some people have trouble reaching out at all. I'm grateful that we're not dealing with that. This is a little bit, honestly, to me, better to deal with because you want the care. Oh, sometimes I've had to like pull, you know, pull teeth to get my patients to even consider going into treatment. So at least you're getting support. We just have to figure this out and be kind and compassionate as we learn more. Okay. Final question. Question number 10 says, hi, Katie, my therapist allows me to text her when I'm struggling with my eating disorder and need some extra accountability. For example, I send her photos of my meals when I'm having a hard day. My question is, is that something that you would allow your clients to do? Mm, No. And I don't mean that in any judgmental way. I just don't because I deal so, I also am very, because I do eating disorders, obviously too, the correlation with eating disorders and attachment and trauma, not to mention BPD, borderline personality disorder, all of that is just too, boundaries are too important. They're too valuable and vital to treatment because if you don't know, a lot of that comes along with this fear of abandonment. And if I allow patients access to me all the time, they'll start to try to put me into that hole that they feel they have. Like maybe it's the mom that wasn't there and they're like, oh, Katie, she can be my mom. I'll put her in that hole in my heart. Or she can be like my best friend or she can be, you know, whatever. Um, I want to deter from that, which is why I actually use an app called Recovery Record. This is obviously not sponsored. Um, and that's where my patients will log their meals and I check in every work day. So Monday through Friday, I do not check in on the weekends, but I expect them to still log and they can only text me when they need to change an appointment or when there's a crisis. And my encouragement or my homework for you, if you were my patient would be to try to find someone that you can reach out to for support that isn't me, because the goal of therapy is essentially to not need it anymore. And it's not that you need to like not have therapy right now. I'm just saying that that's the end goal. So I'd want you to slowly be building a safe group of people that you can go to for support when you need it so that you're not always having to turn to me. Um, Yeah. I just want you to have a fuller group of support. And it's just the boundaries are so essential. And that's why I don't allow my clients to do that. And I don't, I don't reply to texts. You know, it feels kind of, I even had this patient that would try (laughs) 
it was part of like the manipulation component of her fear of abandonment. And we would talk about it in session. It stopped, but it took like a month of us like hitting it head on for her to realize that when she would reach out in quote unquote crisis, but I knew it wasn't a crisis. I check in on my patients. Don't you worry. But it was her trying to create a little concern in me so that she could get me to respond. Cause I had done that before. Cause I thought it was a real crisis, but then I saw this pattern. And so I brought it up and, you know, we just have to be very cognizant of, the the setup in therapy and making sure that I'm not the goal is not for my patients to need me the goal is for me to empower them to do it on their own and so too much texting too much contact can kind of muddy the waters on that okay I hope that helps. Happy New Year. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you're new, welcome. I ask for questions on Sundays over on my YouTube channel uh, where the podcast is housed. So if you get onto YouTube, just look up Ask Katie Anything or you can go to the channel, which is called Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the name of the podcast I do with my husband, Sean. Um, Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. I hope you've enjoyed the holiday. Hope you got some time to just relax, contemplate, spend some time inside instead of distracting with outside stuff. I know media and marketing is intense this time of year. I love you so much. 2023 is going to be a great year. I'll see you next time. Bye. Wanted to know. Ask Katie.